What is it you can't do without? Is there something that, uh, without it, you just can't get through the day? Uh, Maybe, like me, it's got to be that cup of tea first thing in the morning when you wake up, right? Or, and I'm looking at Colin here, it's maybe that mid-morning coffee and the after-lunch coffee and the mid-afternoon coffee and the just-after-dinner coffee and so on and so forth. What is it you can't do without that kind of gets you through the day? What is it that keeps you going in life, though, at work or at home? What is it that will keep our church going as a growing Jesus movement reaching the world, as we were thinking about last week? Well, we started a new series just last week in the book of Acts. This was written by a man called Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke, and he traces those early years, the first sort of 30 years or or more of the church's beginnings, what we're calling the Jesus movement as it spread out from Jerusalem to engulf the world. Here's how we could sum it up. The book of Acts is about the continuing work of Jesus to build his kingdom in all the world through his spirit-empowered people. And one of the things I challenged us to think about last week is whether we will be a people, we will be a church where the the Jesus movement seems to kind of fizzle out a bit. Will we be the stubborn cliff on which the waves meet their end or will we keep the movement going? As we turn back to Acts today, in Acts chapter 1, I want to show you three things we need Not just to get through the day, that's certainly true, but to see this movement continue and grow through us. These aren't things we just need for mission and evangelism, that's certainly the the, the edge of it here, but for the whole of our Christian lives, things that go much deeper than a cup of coffee to get you through. These things we're going to talk about today will get you through cancer, through unemployment, through depression, and anxiety through anything. So to keep the movement going and to live the Christian life, we need three things. A conviction about the resurrection, a commission in the power of the Spirit, and a confidence in the ascended Christ. Firstly, let's think about a conviction about the resurrection. If we're going to keep the movement going and live the Christian life, we first need a conviction about the truth of Jesus' resurrection. So look back at verse 3. After Jesus' suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So, It refers to his suffering here, doesn't it? And uh, we know how Jesus died on the cross. He he rose again. Luke records that in his gospel as well. And and, uh, in many ways, that was sort of the pinnacle of his earthly ministry. Dying, he bears the sins of us all. He, He pays the penalty we deserve by his own precious blood. But in then his resurrection, he's defeated our death. He brings eternal life. To us all. 
But even though Jesus had told them again and again that he would rise again, the disciples still didn't seem to expect it. They were still surprised, weren't they, when it happened? Um, You know, some people think that the disciples, you know, they they were just sort of more superstitious than we are today. They didn't have the the sort of the knowledge that we had, you know, and they were a bit more primitive. They were more easily led. But when you read the accounts, you find that isn't the case. They were just as sceptical as you or I might be, particularly about the resurrection. If you were to read the end of the Gospel of Luke, for example, he tells us there when Jesus appeared alive to the disciples, it says they were shocked. They were afraid. It says they didn't believe because of amazement and joy. Jesus says, why are there doubts in your mind? You see, in the Jewish belief that these men had, there was no expectation of one man, the Christ, rising from the dead. And in Greek and Roman thought as well at the time, a resurrection idea was ridiculous. They believed the body was bad. You need to escape it. Why would you want to resurrect it? So there's no expectation of a resurrection. And so the disciples need convincing. And so for 40 days, that's what it says, the risen Jesus appears to them. And it's almost like he's constantly having to prove himself all over again. Giving many convincing proofs that he was alive. So he's there, he's physically with them. They can touch him. They can hear him. They can see him. They give him food and watch him eat it. He gets them to touch his crucifixion wounds and so on. Uh, But then even right up to the end, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 17, just before Jesus ascended, that some worshipped and some doubted. Doubted. Jesus doesn't ask them to believe without any evidence, you see. Uh, Nor does he take them just for a bunch of primitive, gullible fools. But if this Jesus movement is going to grow and progress, these apostles have to be convinced that the resurrection is true. And what do we find? It seems that indeed they were. As we go on in Acts, not only was it the main theme of all of their preaching, but the great motivation for their whole mission as well, especially when they suffered for it. So think about it. It wasn't because they were gullible or naive or stupid or superstitious. They had no less skepticism about a resurrection than you or I might have. Whatever doubts they had, whatever questions, they must have come to a strong conviction that Jesus is truly alive. And they would all dedicate the rest of their lives to telling people. Some people think, don't they, that faith... Uh, 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 simply believing something without evidence. But true faith is not just something, it's not just a feeling, it's not suspending rational thought or anything like that. In fact, Christianity invites us to thoughtfully examine it. Remember, Luke is writing his gospel and acts to give us certainty. But don't misunderstand this. You don't need certainty to have faith. Some people say they won't believe anything unless they have, um, or, or believe anything is true without absolute proof. But no one really actually believes that. 
It's impossible, not to mention impractical, to have certainty about anything and everything. We have to live, all of us, with a measure of faith about many, many things. Certainty is not a prerequisite of faith. And moreover, doubt is not incompatible with faith either. Having doubts doesn't mean you don't have faith, therefore. We can say, like that man did to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Doubts can actually be a good thing. They can even deepen our faith as we genuinely and honestly wrestle with our questions and uncertainty. Doubts help us to expose, actually, and get rid of all the false premises and assumptions we have in order to get to the core of it. I think some of you need to hear this this morning. You're looking for 100% certainty before you will follow Jesus. Maybe because you want to know, I just need to know he's worth it, that it works. But that isn't the right question, is it? Don't ask whether it works. Ask whether it's true. If it's true, it'll work. Or maybe, actually, honestly, you say you aren't convinced. You say you can't believe because because there isn't enough proof. Because actually, you don't want to believe it. You don't want to. You know you'll have to give some things up. You'll have to make some changes. You'll have to fully commit to Christ. And you just don't really, when you're honest with yourself, you just don't want to do that. And people who say, often people who say, there is no proof, or they aren't convinced, they're just making excuses. And some of you who are Christians here today, you've been struggling with doubt. We all do from time to time. But do you realise you can believe and have doubts at the same time. It's what you do with those doubts that really matters, though. Let them, let them drive you to genuinely search for answers, to ask good questions, to dig down under your biases and presuppositions and so on, to learn to doubt your doubts. One of the best things you can do is Well, it's really what the apostles are experiencing here. They're encountering Jesus. And we can do that as we read the Bible and study it and dig into it. Uh, Get into the scriptures as we've been encouraged to in our praying today. Spend time with people who seem to really know this Jesus and learn from them. There are some fantastic books out there right now which give a defense and reasons for the hope that we have in us. Keep looking to Christ. Keep digging and pressing in and and persevere through your doubting. Some of you are doubting. Don't give up. Persevere. And you will find that your faith may grow even stronger than it ever did before. That's certainly what I found through seasons of doubt in my life. If we're going to keep moving forward as Christians and moving in this mission, we need a conviction about the truth of the resurrection. And to have this conviction is to know Beyond reasonable doubt, not all doubt, but beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus is alive. That death is defeated. That our sins are forgiven and we have a real hope of eternal life. If that's true, it really just changed everything, doesn't it? If we're going to keep the movement going, we need this conviction about the resurrection. 
The second thing we need is to keep this movement going, to keep going as Christians, is a commission with the Spirit's power. A commission with the Spirit's power. Our, our Christian living and our mission need to have the power of the Holy Spirit. So look at verse 4 again. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, so there he is eating with them again, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So here in this passage, we know the disciples are being given this great commission, this immense commission to go into all the world, preach the gospel, build churches. Now that's no small task, is it? And it's on a global scale. So what's the first thing the disciples need to do? Do they need to start, right, let's get together, let's lay out a map, uh, start strategizing and planning, right, uh, John, you're going to go over here, Thomas, you're going to go over there. No. Do they need to, to start raising the funds? You know, it's going to cost some money. Let's get some money together. Maybe they just need to simply get on with preaching and teaching the gospel. Well, the first thing they need to do is nothing. <laughs> Jesus tells them to wait. <clears throat> but, but hang on, Jesus, we've, we've got to tell everyone you're alive, that you're ascending to the throne, that forgiveness of sins is available to anyone why wait? And of course that prompts their question there in verse 6, uh, as we saw last week. Isn't this the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Um, how long are we going to wait, Jesus? Aren't you going to restore Israel now? Wait, what, what's this waiting? But as we saw last time, this actually showed that their vision of the kingdom was too narrow, wasn't it? They were thinking of a really a geopolitical, ethnic kind of kingdom. But the kingdom of Jesus is for the whole world. And, and it wouldn't initially be a purely physical kingdom, but a really a spiritual one. It's a church that needs to be built and grow. And a spiritual kingdom like this needs a spiritual power. It requires a baptism, an immersing, and a filling up of the Holy Spirit of God himself. So look at verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Power. Now think about that. The, the, the power at the time, the dominant power that probably crossed their mind at the time was the Roman Empire. It had a, a raw kind of brutal strength to it. Strength of politics, strength of the military, it had the numbers. You felt the power of Rome by the edge of a sword. But the power of the Spirit isn't like this. We don't build the kingdom with the sword or with politics or with our own strength. We build the kingdom as we bear witness to the risen Christ in the power of the Spirit. That's why the apostles had to wait to wait for the Spirit to show up. They needed His power to do this work. And they would be foolish to face the mission in their own strength and wisdom and ability. Only the power of the Spirit could give them, for example, words and wisdom. As we said last week, whenever we see the Spirit come upon somebody in Acts, what usually attends it is, the, is something from the mouth that they begin to proclaim or declare or prophesy something. 
Only the power of the Spirit could give them the words and the wisdom. Words filled with divine power to demolish strongholds. Words that that no one could refute or contradict. Words that would persuade and convince even the hardest hearts. Only the power of the Spirit could fill them with the courage and boldness in the face of opposition and threats and help them speak about Jesus no matter what. Only the power of the Spirit could work signs and wonders through them to heal the sick and to raise the dead and show the love of Christ. Only the power of the Spirit could make their preaching effective, working in the hearts of their listeners, convicting of sin, convincing them of the truth and giving them faith. Only God can convert somebody. It's impossible for them to do that. It must be a work of a powerful spirit. That's why they had to wait. Because it was not by their might, nor their power, but by the Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, we need that power too, don't we? We need his power so that we are filled more and more with Christ, Ephesians 3.16. We need power to overcome sin and temptation and to stand firm in this battle, Ephesians 6 verse 10. We need power to persevere and keep going when we're discouraged and tired, Colossians 1.11. We need the power of the Spirit to give us joy and peace and hope when we, when we are struggling, Romans 15.30. We need power if we're going to see our church continue the movement. To see people reach with the good news about Jesus, freed from their sins. Power to see lives transformed and healed. Power to see the gospel grow in this place. Don't you want this power? I think the trouble is, some of us live our lives in a way that doesn't need it. I think the trouble is, some of us live our lives in a way that doesn't need it. Or we maybe just get up and get on without waiting on God first to fill us. So maybe we never put ourselves on the front line of mission, let's say, never willing to speak about Jesus. You don't need power if you keep your mouth shut. You don't need power if you're willing and ready to serve others and Reach out to the lowest, the least, and the lost, the most challenging, even kind of people. You don't need power for that if you're not going to do that. You don't need power if you think you can do anything in your own strength and wisdom. And you won't have power unless you're willing to wait for it and seek God for it. Dear friends, we have a great commission, but we will and cannot be part of this movement or live in any way. The true Christian life without this power. Maybe you need to seek more of him today. Maybe this week. Maybe this week. Just make it your prayer. First thing in the morning. Wait on the Lord. Before you get into anything. Before you launch out into your day. Wait on the Lord. Ask him to fill you with the Spirit's power for life and mission today. When I first started in the ministry. I quickly came to see the end of myself. And sometimes the only thing I could pray, the only prayer I could offer was, I can't, you can. I can't, you can. Sometimes that's all I could pray. 
I didn't have the words. I was too weak. I was too broken. I can't. But you can. Fill me with power. We need power. The final thing. We need to keep this movement going. Is a confidence in the rule of Christ. A confidence in the rule of Christ. Knowing Christ is ascended to his throne and dwelling in our hearts by this spirit, then we have confidence to face anything in this life and mission. Look at verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. This moment is what is known as the ascension of Christ and there's so much we could say about this. But let me just summarise a few things for us. The ascension is really Christ's enthronement in heaven. Jesus is the king who invaded the enemy's world, who's conquered sin and death, who has freed his people and leads them into victory. And now he's exalted to the highest place in all the universe as king. He's been raised to the right hand of the throne of God, who has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. And that means at least two things for us now. It means that he's with us and he's ruling for us. It means that he's with us and he's ruling for us. Christ is with us. How can that be though? How can Christ be with us, as Alex happens to think about, if he's gone back to heaven? Well, by returning to the Father... Jesus is able now to send the Holy Spirit into our hearts, as we've just seen. Christ is with us through the Spirit. You, you might remember the story about Mary, right? Mary, uh, it's after the resurrection. She's searching for Jesus and he appears to her and um, she runs to him. She grabs hold of him. She's clinging him so tightly like this. She wouldn't let go of him, But Jesus says that, look, you've, you've got to let me go, Mary, so that I can ascend to the Father, he says. You see, if I stay with you like this, we'll have to be separated at some point. I can't walk around with you on my leg all day. We'll have to be separated at some point. I can't be everywhere at once in this form. But if I go, I will send you the Spirit to be with you always in your heart. I came across a, a lovely quote from St. Augustine, who said this. You ascended before our eyes, and we turned back grieving, only to find you in our hearts. Isn't that lovely? It's for our good that Christ Ascends so that now he can be in all of us wherever we go. There isn't anywhere now on this planet that you can go and Jesus won't be there with you by his spirit. He's not stuck in one place, maybe over in Israel, in Jerusalem, or somewhere like that. He's, he's with us in the doctor's waiting room, in the middle of the night when you can't sleep. As you go into the job interview, as you start to share Jesus with a friend over coffee, he's with you. 
even in the darkest prison, where the bars would keep everyone else out and you all by yourself. Those bars don't keep Jesus away. He's with you by his spirit. The last words of Jesus in Matthew 28 are that he is with us always until the end of the age. So the ascension gives us confidence. Confidence that we can keep going, living the Christian life, fulfilling this mission because we know Christ is with us in our hearts. The ascension means Christ is with us. The ascension also means Christ is for us. Christ is for us. You see, now that Christ has ascended to the throne of heaven, he has been given authority on our behalf to rule the entire cosmos. It means he has all authority and power which he is exerting and using for one primary purpose. All of this he governs for one primary purpose, for your good. Listen to these words from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 onwards. Listen to this. Actually, I'll start in verse 18. Ephesians chapter 1. I pray, Paul is praying, I pray also that you may know his incomparably great power for us. Oh, there's power. His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. This is the ascension. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And what's it all for? What's this ascension for? Verse 22. And God placed all things, all things, under his feet and appointed Jesus to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Christ is head of everything for the church. I mean, you, I mean for his glory, yes, yeah, for, for his own this and that, no, yeah, but for the church. He's working out everything. Listen, all the good things and all the bad things. For our good. Even when we can't see it. Even when we can't think. I mean, think of Joseph. You go back and read Genesis. You, you read the life of Joseph. Taken by his brothers. Cast into a pit. By his own brothers. Sold as a slave. Taken away from his family and his home. Persecuted. Oppressed. Imprisoned. Forgotten. Don't you think Joseph prayed a few prayers in that pit? God, help me. Where are you, God? Help me. No answer, seemingly. Until the day his brothers stand before him when he's been made prime minister of Egypt and he's able to rescue his brothers, his whole family. God working. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Even when we can't see all the good and all the bad, God is working together for his church for his people. That's the way of the cross, isn't it? The cross is terrible suffering for an ultimate good. 
That's how Christ rules the universe now. Sovereignly controlling all things so that even evil, even evil defeats itself and brings about God's good purposes. So we can have confidence because of his ascension, knowing that whatever we face in the Christian life or on this mission, Christ is ruling and reigning still. You know, we could also talk about the intercession of Christ for us now as well. He is in heaven as high priest. I love the way Luke describes the ascension. It says he was blessing his disciples. And the idea is almost like he was blessing them even as he was ascending. Blessing, 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 blessing. Because that's what he's still doing for us now as high priest. That was what uh, uh, Aaron did, the high priest in Leviticus. He was blessing. He said he lifted his hands and blessed the people. Jesus lifted his hands and blessed his people at the ascension. He is now high priest interceding for us. He stands before the Father, representing us, pleading his own blood in our place before God. Listen, he's not just saying, he's not just saying, oh, Father, uh, look, Dan's messed up again. Look, he's messed up again. Please, would you just show, I know I I asked yesterday and the day before that and the day before that, but please, this one time, would you show him just a bit more mercy and a bit more grace? And oh, the Father says, well, Jesus, because it's you asking, yeah, sure, I'll show him a bit more mercy. No, it's not like that. It's much stronger than that. Jesus' intercession. He's saying, Father, Dan's messed up again, but you cannot condemn him. Because I have already paid for all of his sins. And you being a faithful and just God would never exact the same punishment twice for the same crime. Look at my hands. Look at my side. Look at my scars. You cannot condemn Dan. He's interceding for you and for me. So we have confidence. Confidence to approach the throne of grace and receive more mercy than we deserve. That God, before God, all our sins are no longer counted against us because Jesus is there, our advocate, our friend in high places. Have you got any friends in high places? We have a friend in heaven, a brother in heaven. Christ's ascension means Jesus is with us and for us. That gives us confidence to face this life and his mission no matter what. You can walk out of here today, no matter what is going on in your life, confident that there is a God in heaven who loves you, that Jesus is ruling and reigning for you. Do you have this confidence this morning? Do you believe Christ is risen and ascended, that he's ruling the universe for you? Because without this confidence, how can we live the Christian life or fulfill the mission or this movement? How can we? If we're going to keep going, to keep growing, to keep the movement going, we need a conviction about the resurrection. To know the truth that sets us free. To know Christ personally, ourselves, by faith. And to wrestle with that even through our doubts. We need the power of the Spirit. We we cannot do anything for the kingdom without Him. And we need confidence in the ascended Christ, always with us and ruling for us. How are you going to get through today? 
are you going to get through tomorrow? How are you going to get through this week? Jesus is alive. You have the Spirit's power. In heaven, you have a Savior ruling. Let's bow our heads.